This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Okay, joining me today on the Becoming Educated podcast is none other than Tom Sherrington. Tom is a former teacher and school leader with over 30 years experience. Tom has worked in a wide range of schools in the UK and as far afield as Jakarta, Indonesia. Tom works as an educational consultant supporting schools with curriculum, assessment and improving the quality of teaching and speaks regularly at conferences and education festivals. Tom is a prolific blogger sharing his ideas through teacherhead.com and is a prominent Twitter educationalist. He has written some brilliant books including Rosenstein's Principles in Action and the outstanding The Learning Rainforest, Great Teaching in Real Classrooms. Most recently, he co-authored the brilliant teaching walkthroughs with Oliver Caviglioli, which really is an amazing contribution to education. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here with you. I can assure you the, the, the pleasure is all mine, so thank you. But just to kick us off, Tom, could you please give the listeners a, a whistle-stop tour of your career to date? Well, I started teaching properly in 1987 as a physics teacher, uh, teaching in a sixth form. I learned to teach physics there, and then, I, and then I moved down to London and taught in a couple of big comprehensive schools, uh, and mainly as a teacher, but then I became deputy head of a, of a new school that opened in, in uh, Tottenham. And then I moved to Indonesia for a few years to work in an international school, which was an amazing experience. And I became the head of the secondary school then. So I got a taste of school leadership. And then I came back to England, worked in a grammar school as a head, worked in a, a big comprehensive in Islington. And then I decided to just go alone as a as a consultant. So the last couple of years, I've been sort of writing books and uh, working with schools. So lots of different things. But I, I still think of myself as a teacher, albeit uh, an ex-teacher. A teacher now teaching teaching teachers, I, I suppose, with, yeah. the, with that. So we're going to cover a few of the, 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 th- the books you've written and some of the some of the things you've been doing. And we're going to start off with The Learning Rainforest because I, I read that most recently and, and it, it really was a, a wonderful read. And just to, to kick us off on that that journey, could you share how you came to, to write that and, and share when you first created your rainforest metaphor? I think the main the rainforest metaphor started off when I was at the, the grammar school as a head teacher when I realised that you needed a different way to think about school leadership when you have a, a lot of teachers who are uh, highly functioning and yet very different and sort of one size fits all kind of policy making was not really useful or appropriate. And then I start, I, I we had this uh, event where I, which I went to where someone from America told me all about blogging. I'd never heard of it really. Uh, so I thought I wanted the students to do it. So I, I thought well, I'd have a go at it myself before I tell them. And so it, it, you have to sort of type in a byline for your blog. This was 2012. So I wrote in the thing which is still there, which is into the rainforest of, of teaching and school leadership. And so I, I that was so that was right from the beginning. So I started developing a, a kind of a voice for writing about teaching. And then when I when I came out of teaching, you know, being a school leader, I, I had some time. And I thought, well, I'm going to write a book about kind of everything I can think of to say about teaching in one book. And the obvious title was, um, well, the obvious theme was the rainforest. Originally, I was going to call it something about the trees in the rainforest. But then someone said to me, just use the rainforest. It's a much better concept. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. And yeah, so that, that's that's the idea. So I spent a bit of time exploring it, and I used the tree structure 
uh, as a kind of uh, a, a metaphor within the rainforest to hang the various ideas of. We're gonna we're gonna come some come through some of those those themes yeah. in, your, in your in your tree metaphor, and but we're gonna unpick some of the some of the earlier chapters in the book first, and because I particularly enjoyed the curriculum debate, and if I've been honest with you with you, Tom, I've. I've only been teaching for for eight, for eight years, and it was the first time I really kind of engaged with that kind of kind of debate on on curriculum. I've kind of just been doing doing my job as uh, as you were without a wider kind of lens, and and it really opened my eyes eyes to that debate. But where do you see curriculum um, um, now, and is that debate of traditional progressive still the same? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's raging, and I think it's an important debate because uh, it. You know, we, we have to think a lot. I mean, for, so one, one of the most recent things that's coming out now, now everyone, there's a whole new wave of talking about um, anti-racism, Black Lives Matter, and this concept of a decolonized curriculum. And, and that, that to me is so important that teachers engage with that debate. So what does that look like? You know, what, what does the curriculum look like if it's going to be explicitly anti-racist? You know, so you have to think really hard about, so what's in it? In, what are we actually teaching? What's the content? And... That 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 that's not obvious. There are different schools of thought about that. You know, that do you have a traditional curriculum? So, for example, are we better off educating people, making sure they're all just know a standard set of traditional ideas very well and teach that to a high standard? So you've got a good set, a sort of a, a core canonical curriculum, set texts, or should it be more contemporary? Should it be more sort of explicitly teaching from a perspective of? deconstructing our colonial past and so on and be much more orientated in that way and much perhaps more modern than traditional and, and you know that, that's a very simplistic even description of the debate so yeah it's 100 percent relevant now and i still feel that there are people who talk very generally about the kind of learner they want to create and some of the frameworks like um curriculum for excellence and and, the, and the, what's going on in wales I'd spend a lot of time talking about the framework, what it would look like, what the learners should have as capacities at the end. But you still have to decide what the content is. So what goes in the box labelled, you know, we all want our kids to be incredibly independent and, you know, passionate and independent, you know, sort of having a voice, capable, confident, all of those things. But what's the content of the curriculum to foster that is sometimes left to individual teachers to work out for themselves. So yeah, I, I I think it's a, a, an important debate, uh, and my my perspective in as I hopefully outline in the book is that I get irritated when people are too polemical on either side. <laughs> so <laughs> if people are sort of all the way down the line of saying it's all about you know uh, what people need are twenty first century skills, collaborative learning, they all need to be problem solvers, creative thinkers. I just think I'll oh, give it a give over. You know, it's sort of what are you teaching them so that those things happen that's what i'm interested in and there are other people on the other side who sort of think you know what kids need to know is maths science uh, classic texts and understand history really really well and problem solving and collaborative learning are kind of almost irrelevant to them like those are just things which emerge or don't and i think no if you don't if you don't plan an opportunity for a student to do an independent project at some point well, when are they ever going to find out? If you don't give them the opportunity to be creative, when do they ever de decide, you know, learn the mindset around taking a risk and, and, and testing out their own ideas? So it, <laughs> there are these sort of rails, if you like, that I sort of try to push against mm -hmm. to find something workable. And I, and I find that quite a lot of people kind of find that useful. So 
that's that's kind of the, the essence of it. No, certainly, it was interesting you referenced the uh, curriculum for excellence there because it is it is underpinned by by wonderful principles of, of what we want learners to be. But perhaps where we get it wrong, dare I say, is that we haven't exactly defined the content and how we're going to get there and, and what is to be taught to be able to get there. So it was interesting that you that you mentioned surveys and it's 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 great that you you mentioned both sides and you kind of stand somewhere in the middle and, and it's important to, to recognise the strengths and of, of teaching in both ways. So it's, thank you for that. Now on to the, another chapter in your book that I really enjoyed was, was understanding education research. So how did, you, how did your findings from research shape the three areas in your rainforest analogy? Well, I think the main thing is to say that research is there it, for us to, to, to explore but it, you always have to uh, synthesize it with your value system and I, I think I make a quite a strong case that that's what we're doing and so but but in it so it cuts both ways the first thing to say is that there are, there are some things which are to do with um, creating the conditions so aspirations and there is evidence around you know teacher expectations being a, a big factor in in student outcomes and it's kind of self-evident really if you don't expect kids to do very well they're less likely to than if you do so you have to you know, that's that's one area uh, there's also the core which i this thing that i call mode a teaching is is around the, the evidence around instructional teaching and things to do with retrieval practice building schema memory the cognitive science so that's hugely influential. In fact, ever since I've written that book, I've read a lot more cognitive science, and, and I, I probably, if I wrote the book now, I'd probably beef that up even more. Because I think where I visit schools, the biggest weakness I see in teaching is around highly effective instructional teaching, which all students are benefiting from. It's easy to teach a few kids in a class. Mm-hmm. It's just really hard to teach them all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the hard bit. And I think that's where I think most... You know, common weaknesses are, but then there's the the, the final part, which is what I, what I call the mode B teaching, and some of these things are less evidence based. They're less sort of evidenced by research per se. They're just things which I feel without them, the curriculum is less strong. But there are some research uh, uh, studies into things like what does a collaborative learning look like when it's effective. So we get away from saying should we do group work, yes or no, and move towards discussing what would effective group work or collaborative learning look like if it's going to be effective? And we have a discussion on those lines. And it applies to other things like homework. You know, there's no such thing as homework good, homework bad. The question is, what does the evidence say about what effective homework looks like? And I explore that around sort of Hattie's study around homework, which is one of the best parts of Hattie's work, in my opinion, because he explores it in some detail. Again, it's the it's what you do, how you do it, not whether or not to set homework and that, so the, the research chapter hopefully gets you to think more about the, the more nuanced aspect of how research is uh, I- implemented rather than just tell me what I'm supposed to do which it, it just isn't like that. No, certainly it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the, the polarised curriculum debate you have you have those that are 100% for research and those that are, that are kind of Looking at looking at it through a different lens, where it's it's about using that and underpin it with your values of teaching. And I want you to go a little bit, say a little bit more about what you mentioned there about mode A and mode B teaching. Because in you in the book, you you write about recommending an eighty twenty split split, so eighty percent mode B teaching and twenty percent mode B teaching. Can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah, well, I, well, the first thing I'm going to say is it's interesting because I, I, I think I, I don't think I wrote this part of the book very well because I often have that reflected back to me that I recommend an eighty twenty split, but I don't really. I, I just say that that's what I do in my teaching. I don't actually recommend a split at all. I kind of throw it up as a question to say, well, this is how I feel about my teaching. How do you feel about yours? But often people read that as me recommending it. But I, I just think, like, sometimes I look back and I go, it doesn't actually say that, but it's kind of easy to pick that up, I suppose. So what I'm saying is that, like anything, it's a synthesis, a bit like a, a balanced diet, which is a bit of a trite kind of metaphor, but it's useful. So, you know, you need some potassium in your diet, you know, or you're going to die. Basically, your body would would cease to function. How much potassium do you need? Well, hardly any. You just need to have some. You need some vitamin C, but how much? Well, not too much. If you if you doubled, if you went beyond a certain threshold of vitamin C, you couldn't even absorb it anymore. It would be pointless. So you only need a certain amount, but it should be there. So I feel that about some aspects of the Mode B teaching. You know, kids should leave leave school having had some opportunity to test out their capacity to be creative in some discipline or to have, you know, done an investigation which they had to plan and execute or to work with others to come up, you know, to run, a, run an event or something. Um. I think there are all kinds of things like that, which if you leave school and you've never done those things, it's a little bit sad. But that doesn't. But most of the time, most kids learn the most when they are being taught directly from a teacher who's the expert. So the, the mainstay of a most, especially secondary you know, curriculum teaching is mode teaching, which is this sort of instructional teaching. And that is the dominant. That is dominant. And it's the thing which you need to work on the hard the most because it's the hardest to do. But that doesn't mean the other things don't matter. It's just that they have to be put in perspective and the balance roughly. So it does depend on things like you, how confident your learners are. If you've got students who are you know, quite struggling quite a lot, finding learning difficult, they probably need a lot of guided, guided instruction. And that's, that's what they need. But if you find you've got students who are growing in confidence, who, who feel that they're kind of like raring to go the whole time and, and actually, guess what, can read books and find things out for themselves and understand them and share that with their class and so on yes yeah, they can um so harness that and that, that's the thing about teaching you know some teachers i meet they don't believe me when i say that they just think well kids can't do that i think well well that's because you've never met them or you if you don't if you allowed yourself to to trust it maybe you'd find out that some of your students can do stuff you don't even believe they can do and i found that over and over again teachers inhibition are the I put a lid on what t kids uh, end up achieving and uh, that that's my first response whenever someone says to me oh that sounds all lo lovely for you in your posh grammar school or whatever but that would never work with my kids and I just think well no and I, I can tell already it won't work because you're telling me it won't <laughs> you know? and, and, I, and I have to say I've, I, I it, you know that's easy to say but it's I've, I've seen it proven time and time again that some students do suddenly flourish when you take the lid off and you see what they're capable of rather than predetermining that so look it's it's about the blend and the worst thing that happens i think in this mode a mode b is when people just see it as a oh, they go oh great i can it's it's anything goes then and i i think well no it's not it's not like if i feel like it i'm just going to do loads of projects and then hardly do any instructional teaching it's not that it's about what is the best blend to get the best outcome and you might find that you need to do nearly 95% instructional teaching because that's what your students need. And that, that it's sort of driven by them rather than your, your own personal preferences. Yeah, so that, that's, the, that's the metaphor. It's a very loose, um, 
it's a very loose <laughs> separation, isn't it? I mean, God, any, any concept like this is wide open to interpretation. Mm. It's, it, it's just my way of saying instructional teaching is important, but it's not the only thing. And mm. I, I guess that's essentially what I'm doing there. Well, certainly, we're going to we're going to dig a little bit deeper in, in, into the analogies, especially exploring the possibilities, because I, I I thoroughly enjoyed that that section of the book and. I kind of reflected on some of my, some of my own teaching, especially when you talk about going off piece, which we'll come back to. Um, the root of your analogy is to establish the conditions, which and this is and this will be very relevant for for when our teachers get back to school as well. And you did a wonderful um, presentation for I think it was Chiltern somewhere. I can't remember, I watched I can't remember where I watched it, but it was about yeah, re-establishing that routine. So yeah. what are your key tips and strategies for for establishing the right conditions for, for the children? Uh, do you mean sort of when we go back to school after this lockdown, or do you mean just generally? Just generally, because then we can apply that to, to yeah. everyday teaching. Well, establishing the conditions has, I think, uh, it's got three main components, if I, if I say that. So the first one is about behavior management. You, know, you need classes which are uh, where everyone can, can function, thrive, be happy, uh, and and so behavior management is a key thing, and it's it's about that kind of warmth and interpersonal, you know, rapport, but also you know discipline, and you you do need to be able to get everyone to listen whenever you want and get people talking, and and so the behavior management is is one of those things. The 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 second one is to do with expectations. So it, uh, the what I call teaching to the top is the main driver of that. So never putting a ceiling on anyone's aspirations, finding out who are the students in my class, who are the who are the drivers, who are the people who, unless I teach them well, I'm actually holding them back slightly because I'm not pushing them hard enough. Find out who they are. It could be three kids who are your sort of benchmark students where you go, if if they are ever bored or finding it too easy, I'm not doing my job. You know, so I need to I need to make sure I'm always challenging those top end kids. And if I do that, then pretty much you know, then I'm, then I'm kind of on the right track. So the teaching to the top is the, is one of those things. And generally having high expectations of everybody. It's that, it's that stuff to do with accuracy, precision, being bothered, having high standards, you know, it, communicating to kids that, yeah, I care if you, I care that you do, you get it right because I know you can. I care that you're on time. I care that you are very silent when I insist on it. I care that your work looks good because you can, you can present it up to a high standard. I care that, you know, your graph is a straight line through the origin because that's what's required. And yes, you should use a ruler. You know, It's all that thing of being really bothered about the detail and, and making that normal. And, and the last thing is, the, is obviously the curriculum, you know, creating the conditions uh, for excellent learning. You need a curriculum which is going to allow excellence to flourish. And you can have some teachers who could be effective except that their curriculum delivering is a bit shallow and and so the curriculum is kind of like a, a limiting factor in in e achieving excellence if it's not rigorous enough in its design then you can't really deliver it to a high, higher standard than that so that's that's another part of it so ho hopefully that that's part of what i'm um saying there and and hopefully that comes across no it certainly does about that that three three areas are definitely key in terms of Getting getting behaviour right and then having that high expectations. It goes back to what you were speaking about, and, you, and when I asked you about your mode A and mode B teaching, you know, and teaching to the top and and having that kind of teacher expectations because no one rises to low expectations if you like. Then you go on to the next section is building the knowledge structure, and, and this is where you write that specifically mode A teaching might dominate daily school life, which we've already alluded to. Um, 
how do we effectively build knowledge with our, with our young people? Well, it's like, you know, how long have we got? But essentially, it, you need to understand your subject at the le as a set of sort of building blocks. So imagine that you've got, um, I don't know, a house made of bricks and, and other materials. You need to know what sequence to lay them down and you need to know how they all connect together with the vision of the house. So you've got to have a vision of the house, which is exceptional, where when you've built it, wow, it's going to be amazing. But you can't just will it into being. You've got to know where to start. And of course, you know, in the metaphor that I'm using here, some of the students will be at different points with that. So you've got to find out kind of where they're at and, and help them. Because essentially students build their own house. They have to sort of knit things together. So you have to have a sense of the typical flow of concept building within a subject and constantly checking whether the students are have succeeded at that level before you add the new things. And, and that requires, you know, an experience with the curriculum understanding common misconceptions, uh, understanding tools for explaining things well, and always, 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 knowledge only adds to existing knowledge. Just like a, a, you know, a house doesn't, you know, you have to have sort of solid foundations and every level builds to the level above. So you have to have lots of good checking mechanisms. You know, there's no point just delivering a curriculum if the students aren't building their schema successfully as you go. So you have to have to build knowledge successfully. You've got to be constantly, you have to have formative assessment processes which are constantly checking and not not at a level of an individual. And that's the hardest bit. So you might make an assumption that, oh, I think we're okay to go on now because you're getting a couple of good responses. But actually, you've got four students in the corners of your classroom who are hiding the fact they haven't got a clue what you're talking about. And then you've already moved on and they are let, they're being left behind. That's the hard bit. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I keep saying this, and I find I'm, I'm saying this more and more. It's actually relatively easy to teach something to somebody. <laughs> but teaching is like multi, it's like, it's like having sort of one-to-one -one tuition with 30 people at the same time. It, it's tough. You, you need to, you need to have extensive re repertoire of, of mechanisms for getting in the, getting in amongst, finding out how are you doing? What do you think? What do you understand? Okay. Did you get this? Did you get that? And that can be in the, that's got to be a combination of dynamic, in the classroom in the moment things like questioning techniques but also you know set piece like quizzing and checking knowledge checks and also longer longer term things where you're looking back over a bigger range of topics so in a lot you know assessments which cover a broader spread and then having ways of building back up so there's th th that's what how you build knowledge you need to know your curriculum and you need to have a good set of rep of techniques for for, for for you know delivering that and building as you go Definitely, I think that's key for, key for teachers to build that pedagogical content knowledge and understand where the, the misconceptions and, and, and capture that. Because as you say, when you've got a class of 30, 30 I mean, some of, some of my classes have got 33 children up in, up in Scotland, so making sure that they're all there is, is a challenge. Um, you kind of finish of exploring the possibilities in what you call Mode B teaching, which we've spoken about. And you write that this builds on the knowledge from Mode A and, must be, and you must be clear on the purpose of choosing some of the strategies that you write about. Why is that, and, and what are your favourite strategies from this section? Um, what the favourite strategy from, from Moby? Well, I, I, the first thing is to talk about how it must build. Is is uh, my a, a good example of this would be um, a debate where students are being asked to debate something they have no understanding of. I've seen this. I've done it. It's it's just you think, oh, it's isn't it? Isn't debating great? We must get kids debating. Um, 
And so I, I, one of my more recent examples was a lesson, you know, uh, uh, to be honest, a, a, a great teacher in a great school, but I thought this was odd, where she'd got this class to debate vaccination, the rights and wrongs. So you've got half the class are vaxxers, pro-vaccination, and half the class are anti-vaxxers. And it created this sort of almost like, you know, Celtic versus Rangers kind of war of, you know, kids were leaving the class fist pumping, going anti-vax for life, you know. And I just thought, no, this is totally inappropriate. You know, you, you, you've created this sort of thing where the, the debate it has, has overridden your need for them to build knowledge around vaccination. And it was inappropriate. They didn't understand enough about vaccination, really, to legitimately debate it at an intelligent level. It was, and I've seen that over and over again. So you need to know what you're doing. And it could be a project. I've seen kids where they're making stuff, and it could be like a board game. I remember seeing a lesson, which is a snakes and ladders board game about developing countries. You know, So the snakes, the ladders are when they get, foreign aid or a good trade deal or sort of you know some some benefit which happens they've got raw materials which they discover or whatever and the snakes were famine and war and you know corruption and all these other cliches and i just thought really I mean, the kids are spending a lot of time making very neat looking snakes and ladders board games and not really learning very much about developing countries because the, the emphasis was on the product not the content it's, it's not what learn, what school's for, you know. So a good mode B activity is, is, is rich and deep, like get kids, you know, genuinely sort of giving a presentation from memory, saying stuff they know and understand about developing countries and why this is a good example and why it's a bit more complicated than rich country, poor country, you know, saying things that they've studied and they know. That's how it should feel. I've seen debates which are exceptional, where students are really knowledgeable about the thing they're debating, and they, they are they're having an argument about a point of principle or ethics or even the the, the knowledge because they're debating the, the say, you know, the, the causes of of a war or whatever it was. And I think so. Students can do debating when they when they have the knowledge for it to be successful. Like for example, Model United Nations is a good example where where you get students who've really done their research are, are talking with a knowledge of what a, a country would, would typically say. And others who haven't done their research are kind of winging it. And it's like, okay, you're just flagging here because you don't really know what Nigeria would say in the situation or China or whatever. So that, that's what I think is important. My favorite strategies, I suppose the ones where I think we, the one which is the one I would use more often is a kind of open response. So, Normally, towards the end of a topic, when we're cementing the learning, we say to the students, okay, so how do we consolidate all of this? Well, we can do some testing and so on, but maybe make a product, make a thing which showcases your knowledge. And it could be a booklet, a video, it could be anything. And you get students making amazing things. I've, I've, I've had students making websites. Sometimes they want to do a presentation to the class. Some have made a video, film, you know, and kids have... When, they, when they've got this open uh, thing, what, what happens is they have to make some choices. And that's actually quite a good learning process because some of them are, are inhibited again. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? And you're having to say to them, yeah, it's okay, but it's got to be excellent. So what does excellence look like? You have to have that discussion. It's not just do any old rubbish. But so every so often uh, over the course of a year, if the students have had this opportunity to produce a product of their own choosing, 
I, I find that really helps to get. And then what happens is you have a richness in the lessons. I, I actually think one of the worst mistakes you can make as a teacher in terms of what it feels like is to set everybody the task of making a PowerPoint presentation on the same topic. Because <laughs> then you have to watch them all. And it's the most boring thing. Like, literally, nobody's enjoying it. Not one person. It's like you've seen three, and then the fourth person stands up, and you go, oh, God, do we really have to even watch it? Because it's it's tedious. Whereas if, if they've chosen something, if you've got a couple of PowerPoints, but then there's another, there's a YouTube clip, or there's someone's made a website or whatever, and it's got, it's got this variety, then kids can learn from each other that actually there are different ways to express ideas, and they're all good, you know, as long as the, there's a standard. So that, that's my feeling about that. So that's the classic mode A, mode B. Again, always building on the knowledge teaching which has come before it. No, brilliant. I can just, I can, I've, I can, sorry, just myself, I can imagine. I've, sorry, I've just, just there. To, I've even done that myself when I've asked everyone to make a PowerPoint and I just saw myself teaching in classes and thinking how boring it is, listening to them all say the same thing, whereas that variety and it's important to build on the, the knowledge there. So thank you very much. We're now going to move on to, to, to your other works and, and ask a couple of questions around them. And, and the first one is, is Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction. Why do you think his principles are so important for teachers to know? I think, um, I think, and it's a good question, way to frame it, actually, because it's the principles that are important to know. It doesn't really have to be through Rosenshine per se. You know, so he was someone who was scanning the, the territory of what, what are effective teachers. He used some observational research techniques, looking at what effective teachers typically do, and then synthesizing that with cognitive science to come up with these principles which. He published, you know, later later in his life, 2010. But he'd been developing them for a long time. So the reason why I think people should know them is because they're, they're a combination of uh, observational things. So what do effective teachers seem to have in common when they're teaching in this instructional mode A kind of way? And also, how does that link to the cognitive science? And what he says is that the, the, the two sets of ideas, well, and also some other studies, there's no conflict between them. So they... The, the, what effective teachers seem to typically do totally coincides with the things that you probably ought to be doing if you're following the ideas to do with memory and a cognitive load theory and stuff. So there's there's also a range of them. So they cover quite a lot of different things. Actually, actually I like when you, you can talk, talk about uh, Rosenstein's principles quite a lot before you've run out of stuff to discuss. You know, So Retrieval practice, you know, a daily review, weekly and monthly review. Well, you know, that's a thing to get right in itself. I'd take you ages to master that. Questioning, asking lots of questions and checking for understanding. Everyone does that. Um, sequencing concepts and then modeling and scaffolding. Modeling and scaffolding. I mean, that, that, these are the, the real complex things of how you explain an idea. Scaffolding. I was discussing this with someone online yesterday about how you've got a mixability primary classroom how scaffolding plays a role and at what point does scaffolding make it too easy for some kids and do you therefore do you have different types of scaffolds so scaffolds is a and so you know as as we go through and then the final thing is practice you know this brilliant idea that you get better at things by repeatedly doing them but there's a there's guided practice where you're closely checking closely checking that success is being engineered and finally, withdrawing your guidance so the students are practicing on their own. So for me, that, those are the principles. That covers so many bases in teaching. Not all of them. No one ever. No one claims that. 
Rosenshine wouldn't claim that. It's just, but it's just, it's just a nice broad range of things, each of which is quite challenging to get dead right. And um, so you've got a lot of mileage. So that's why I think teachers benefit from engaging with them because there's so much material in there. Mm, there certainly is, and I think the, I, I particularly like the way he says that great teachers do this and other teachers do this, and it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to be a great teacher? So let's unpick that and unpack it and go more. And in your, in your, in your. In your wonderful, wonderful small book, you bunch you bunch the principles together into into four strands. Could you could you briefly share what those four strands are and, and talk about what you kind of put down in that book? Yeah, well, I, I found that when you know, in fact, origi- very originally there was seven. Rosenstein had seventeen features of excellent teaching, and then he he himself distilled them down into ten. Some sometimes people say they prefer the seventeen, but then because detail is useful. But then when I found I was explaining it to people and I was going to, I wrote this blog, I, I thought, well, 10 things is a lot. It's quite a long list. And actually, I, I found myself naturally linking them together. So daily review and weekly and monthly review. That's the first strand. And why is that they go together? Because the types of things you do in terms of checking students' knowledge are similar in terms of the, the processes in the lesson. It's just... They have a slightly different emphasis. So they go together. It's about retrieval practice, essentially. Uh, ask ask questions and check for understanding. Well, again, that's to do with the interaction you have with your students. So those go together. Our effective teachers ask more questions, typically, and they do the same as saying, you know, what have you understood? What have you understood? And, and filling in the gaps. So that, that's a, they're like questioning. But the, the, the third one is this. This one is slightly more arbitrary in a way because they are separate as well as connected. So teaching in small steps and so this idea of breaking the curriculum down step by step modeling so showing how to do things and then scaffolding showing how to reach how to re- achieve excellence how to do difficult things so that's I, I i see that as a sequence because it helps you think about a curriculum plan how do i start how do i show them how do i show them how to do it when it's hard what excellence look like all those that, so that's a flow i think i think that works well and last of all, the practice and the high success rate. So Rosenstein has this idea that um, I think the evidence around this in terms of the numbers is a little bit sketchy, if I'm honest. But he says you know, effective teachers secure a success rate around 80%. So it's it's quite high. In other words, they, they, they set the level of difficulty of the work so that most of the, on average, you know, student by student, you're getting a kind of 80% success rate. So... That means that most of the time they're practicing getting things right, not not getting them wrong. So it's not like 50%, but it's also not like 99% early on. It's not just, it, there is a challenge level there. But then it does say you have to obviously, as students get more fluent, more confident, you can practice bigger chunks of stuff at once. You can move more quickly to the independent practice. And I, for me, I, th- I think it's superb. Guided practice to independent practice, showing them really well, really thoroughly how to get it right how to do it properly, how to do it to a high standard early, but then d- deliberately, conspicuously saying, right now, off you go, do it on your own without any help, because that's when you really find out how to do things. That's where you get this fluency, this overlearning. Yeah, so that, that, those are the four strands. Uh, and, you know, they, it just helps you focus on something when you're discussing it and also when you're thinking about it. Practice, questioning, retrieval practice, and you know sequencing the curriculum those are the four kind of areas 
and certainly it kind of helps you bring a bit of clarity to, to what you want to improve in your teaching and I want to take this opportunity now to, to signpost listeners to the excellent resource you've got on your website on, on Rose and Shine's Masterclass because there's if you correct me if I'm wrong I think you've got about three hours of of, uh, of workshops there and, and they're truly brilliant so if anyone wants to learn a little bit more from you I'd highly advise to go there we're now uh, going to chat a lot briefly about your, your latest book um, with Oliver Caviglioli Teaching Walkthroughs so can you share with, with listeners how Teaching Walkthroughs came about and how it came about working with Oliver again yeah well Oliver and I worked together since uh, he I asked him if he would do uh, illustrations for the learning rainforest and actually then you know we, he he had the the idea of making this poster uh, I, I saw his poster for rosenshine which which was a lot of people's first encounter with it which was this blue poster fantastic but then i when i chopped up his poster and reorganized it into my four strands on my blog he liked that and then he, so he made a new version so he we still had this interaction and then he had it here. Then, then we, we kind of realized we sort of had something that we could help each other with, like his visualization, but also his knowledge of research is fantastic. And, but also, you know, writing what the Rosenshine book did, it, it showed that there was an appetite and a power in, in explaining something in a short, accessible form because more people are likely to read it. And so he, he had the idea that about when our walkthroughs are a, a phenomenon in design which is an established thing it's you know decades old as a concept which is that you have visual guides to how to do something he's got some superb examples from the 1930s from like a gardening magazine which almost look exactly like our walkthroughs you know how to do something in five steps so we we had a, a meeting where we talked about how can we blend this together and we came up with the idea that it would be possible to, def- to describe everything you do in teaching in five steps. And that discipline would be something we would, would work out. Uh, and what we would do is we would focus on some core practices. So we, and, and then we had this whole idea of how many there would be. And, and then it just mushroomed there. So we made a list. And, then, and it's, it was so quick to do. You know, we just, because there's so many things we do. And then we realized it was going to be more than books worth. So we, then we went to let's make it three books. So we planned three. I started writing the second volume this week. Uh, last week actually so there's we've already worked out what they're going to be and then there's 50 more to come after that so the process was we agree the list i i write out the steps one two three four five which is me visualizing being a teacher thinking what what do i need to do and then i sent the text is then oliver accesses that and then he 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 creates the diet the visuals and then we sort of back to and fro with it a bit so that that's the process it's it's so exciting and he his visualization of these ideas is also evidenced in form. So he, the, the diagrams are deliberately re, uh, drawn to be context-free. In other words, you don't see a teacher in, in a busy room. It's just a sort of representation of a teacher in a space which could be anywhere. It could be a primary school, an FE college, uh, a sec- secondary school. And the idea is that you try to walk through the, the thing, the idea, m- mentally, and I put yourself in the position of that teacher you're looking at and there's there's another another layer to it which is this idea of creating a shared understanding between colleagues and and that's what it's it's real power I think that's why people are are, are taking to it if I'm talking to one other person and certainly multiple other people about an idea like say 
What do we mean by the core and hinterland in curriculum design? What do we mean by cold calling? What do we mean by, um, you know, quizzing? What, do, what does that mean? Well, let's have a shared thing which defines that thing. And that's what the walkthroughs do. They provide a sort of common framework which says, this is what we mean when we're discussing this idea. And we don't even have to agree with it. It's just that it's the stated. And then you don't just sort of pass the ideas on from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, where they get distorted down the line. You keep going back to the thing saying, well, let's have a look at it again. What does it say? Okay, that, do, we, do we all agree? And that's when I say check for understanding, that's it. And are we doing it like this? And it provides a sort of place to reference when you're discussing how to do your job better as a teacher or how to implement a policy around something. So that's, that's how we see it working. Uh, and it's just been really a joyful thing to, to do. So now we've set up this whole CPD website where people can buy slides, videos, and all this sort of stuff to go with it. Um, yeah, and that's going pretty well. So that was the idea behind it, and it's it, it, it's done way better than we ever hoped, actually. So we're pretty chuffed about it. No, it certainly does. I know that I, that I live in a, in a very much an echo chamber on my, on, my, on my Twitter feed, but it seems to be just going widespread a, a, across the country. And, and you could probably tell me if it's if it's going further afield in the UK. And it definitely is making an impact. But what impact do you do you hope that teaching walkthroughs make on education in the UK? Or, or and what, what? Yeah, what are you hoping for? Um. Well, what we're what we're hoping for is um, world domination. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what we're what we're hoping for is that it sort of it spawns this sort of idea that there are some set ideas which we shouldn't be losing and that we should all understand. And if walkthroughs help develop a kind of a wide, a more widely understood set of ideas that are evidence informed, from which teachers can then build their practice, that would be a good thing. We're also hoping to promote the concept of instructional coaching, uh, so that. The, the walkthroughs helps teachers and their leaders to, to help teachers improve rather through a sort of this collaborative um, coaching model of where, where there's an expertise around it, which is what instructional coaching is, rather than this sort of judgmental approach of I drop into your lesson, I write some stuff on a notepad, and then I, I put my, my feedback in your pigeonhole on a wing and a prayer that you might absorb that feedback, act on it and be a better teacher. You know, so we're, we're, we're genuinely interested in improving quality of teaching so that kids learn more and have a better education. That's our, our, our real deeper level ambition. But we, and, and we think walkthroughs is a really good way of, of, it, of doing that. So what, what we're hoping is obviously, I mean, you know, you, 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 there's no hiding the fact that when you make a book, you, your, your art, your dream is that, nearly everybody knows about it and has it or has access to it so we're on a mission so we've made it we've tried to make it super accessible like the kindle version i don't know all salesmen on you now but the kindle <laughs> version is only three quid i mean it's about as cheap as you as it could be so you, you you could have every teacher with a you know in a super affordable way having the book on their phone and discussing ideas that are there and it's like it's, it's a that that's the kind of thing we're trying to make it as cheap as as possible uh and so that that's our that's our vision for it it has gone we've already got um people who have bought it in international schools in china some schools in australia um and all over all over the uk and in fact literally after i'm i'm on this uh interview with you i'm talking to a 
a teacher who runs a charity in based in Ghana about a quite a widespread implementation of the walkthroughs in Ghana. And, and that type of thing is exciting to us where you feel like, why is it attractive to them? It's because there isn't another thing which is as simply uh, kind of, exp- you know, expresses in a coherent sort of package ideas about teaching. There are loads of books, of course. I mean, we're not the only book by a long way, but it's a combination of the visuals and the text, which I think people like. Yeah, we, 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 we can get carried away with ourselves, but we, we're gonna, we've only just started and we will get feedback as it's implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, tomorrow is our first webinar with all the new people who have bought into this subscription where we're going to talk to people in schools and colleges about how to do the training. So I suppose that's our final thing to, to say before I could go on about it forever is to influence the nature of professional development because we feel like there's, you know, there's a lot of research around that, but still in schools it's it's not done that well in a lot of schools you still have i'm i'm part of this i might get invited to schools to do a one-off training day and i think well great i'd love to come thank you for inviting me but when i ask them well what when's the next session sometimes there isn't one (laughs) you think oh god you know so so what happened after today and and sometimes the answer is well hopefully next year we'll do another thing and you think geez you know is that really the extent of it and I, I'm guilty of not checking that all out in advance. Um, but we're hoping with the walkthroughs concept, there's a, a way of feeding ideas and reinforcing the idea. You've got to practice certain things with a kind of rhythm to them and with a sustained focus and so on. Definitely, I like what you said about building that shared understanding and it, and it helps yourself and your school leaders kind of go deep and, and although you've described the five steps you can you can unpick them and unpack them even even further and, and have that that kind of dialogue and that coaching dialogue and build that into into the school so so thank you for that and i I've, i'm not ashamed to say that i have it in both book form and on my phone because I, I i thoroughly enjoy it so <laughs> definitely it's, it's worth getting so we've come to the end of our, of our interview section tom i've now got my what i call my final three and it's the three questions that i, that I ask every guest but before we do that, can you please, this is where you get to do a, a little sales pitch, could you please direct listeners to where they can buy your books from Teaching Walkthroughs right through to Learning Reinforcing Rosenshine, and also where they can find out more about you, for example, your, your, your blog, and also where they can engage with you, for example, on Twitter. Um, well, on Twitter, I'm teacherhead, at teacherhead, and my blog is teacherhead.com, so that's that's the main thing. The books are all on Amazon, so you know if you look up the names of the books, there they are. And and but for the walkthroughs, we have a website called walkthroughs.co.uk, and if you if you go to that website, you will see you know, a, vid- a video at the top, which is about two minutes long, explaining the whole idea, and then you can click through to you know look at the the cost of the subscription for a whole school or a college. And there's a as of yesterday. Much to our amusement, uh, we have a web. We have merchandise. <laughs> Even <laughs> you, you know, you can buy a badge or a, or a mug or something. But the one thing, one thing that's coming out soon with the Rosenshine, which I, I'm, I'm really pleased about, is a, is a, a teacher um, who has there's, there's there's a book coming out by Claire Grimes, who is actually a workbook, and she's a, a teacher in, in in England who looked at the videos that I put on my blog for Rosenshine's principles. There's sort of five half-hour videos of me talking through the, the the stuff that I've done on this, which is there for free. And she made a booklet um, to go with it, which actually has just been published by John Cat as a sort of proper A5 version, which is exactly the same size as the as the book. 
And so you've got this sort of combination of reading the book, getting her booklet, and, and which you can just write in, and, and and it links to the video. It's all all, all timestamped. It's got QR codes in the book, so you don't have to go. You sort of use your phone, use the QR codes. It's superb. So she's she's done that, and um, so that together that that's just going to be published like any minute any minute now. I think I'm supposed to be advertising that today. So I, I think that's a great CPD uh, tool. You've got video. Um, slides the Rosenshine book and this workbook to sort of guide you through it um and that's the, the book the book the workbooks are only three quid i mean it's i think it's an absolute steal so that's the sales pitch the, the learning rainforest i have to say i mean one, one thing is i it's only three years three years ago now i was still writing it and i'm still delighted to see it kind of selling i, I kind of sometimes forget about it because the Rosenshine thing sort of took me it took over my world for a few months but it's um I did a talk about it last week uh, about the mode A, mode B uh, on on a on a webinar, and I and I found that it's still something which a lot of people res- resonates for them because of this combination of the instructional teaching with other things. And I do think it's important that we we have this sort of holistic view of what an education can be. So the learning rainforest is there again. It's on Amazon and. <laughs> go and get a copy if you haven't read it yet. No, certainly I've uh, for. For me, I've I've been an avid follower of, of your blog for a while, and I've only just recently read the Learning Rainforest. I read Rosenshine um, when it first came out, and and the Learning Rainforest was definitely it was a, I found myself just just immersed in in the book and your thinking, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I would really recommend it, that people buy that, and and of course buy all your books. So now we're on to the final three, Tom. As I said, the three questions I ask all the all the guests. And my first one in that section is, what book or text has had the biggest impact in your teaching career? I would say that the, the book that had the biggest impact uh, was probably a short pamphlet by Dylan William which uh, and, and Paul Black, which is Inside the Black Box. And, and the reason it had a big impact was because it was the first book I read, which any of us had read, really. Uh, it was about 10 years into my teaching career, which told us that our profession is being studied by professional researchers and there are things that we can learn from that. And in that case, it was to do with grades and comments and this revelation, which was a revelation to us, that if you give kids a grade on their work and some comments, they don't read the comments, they only really read the grade. And so this idea of comments only marking became a thing. But it also just opened the whole door to what then, you know, Dylan has talked about as formative assessment uh, and so on, which... So that was enormous. So f- the formative assessment w- revolution that came about after that was was immense. So that's the first one I would definitely say. Thank you. Um, my second question to you, Tom, is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? <laughs> I, I really, I, 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 I suppose to, uh, to be broad about it, I would say to create a classroom so, and, and your teaching experience so that you personally uh, get the most out of it. Like to be quite selfish about it, to make, to make, to be your own boss, to sort of, to listen to other, what other people say, but to the greatest extent you possibly can is make learning uh, and the, 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 the way that you do your job rewarding for you because that, because that you need to sustain that for years. And if you're not, if you feel you're pushing against the tide and doing what other people need and not what you feel, then that's tough. That doesn't mean you shouldn't read books and, and take account of research and stuff, of course. But 
be make it your own make it your own space take control you know and push people back and if what you're doing ends up being excellent people will let you do kind of what you like just so strive for excellence in your way and and try to be try to own it as much as you possibly can well, thank you very much for that for that inspiring advice and and my last question is one that, that really fascinates me and and the range of responses i've got from from all my guests is is very enlightening to me what do you think most gets in the way of, of just great teaching in our classrooms i, I think what gets in the way is um <laughs> quite a few things i i, I think what, what sometimes teachers are um thinking too much about being judged and less about evaluating their own practice based on the evidence of the learning and i, and I think that's a, that's a big barrier so if, if we switch that round to say the thing which we should be most concerned about is are the kids learning and then we would do a better job not what does anyone else think about me so that, that i think that's in the way because people are switched to how will i be judged they do less focus on is every child learning as much as they possibly can and that that, that i think if we switch that around we'd, we'd be in a much better place i wholeheartedly agree so that brings us to, to the end tom and it just leaves me to to thank you so so much for giving me so much of your time this morning it's been a great privilege to to be able to to speak to you because as i said I've, I've followed your work for for quite some time so it really has been has been excellent so thank you so much for that no thank you and thank you for all you're doing i think it's every possible way of getting ideas across to teachers is brilliant so thank you for for hosting this and inviting me thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast until next time teach with joy <laughs>